If you're enjoying this podcast and it's helping your screenwriting, I'd like to invite you to dive even deeper into our program. We have incredible classes that you can access from anywhere in the world, live in our special online format. You can also join us in our studio in New York City or as part of our ProTrack mentorship program, where we pair you one-on-one -on -one with a professional writer who will mentor you every week or every other week through each draft of your screenplay. If you'd like to learn more or to subscribe to this podcast, you can visit our website, writeyourscreenplay.com. Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay podcast. On this podcast, rather than reviewing movies like critics, two thumbs up, two thumbs down, loved it or hated it, we're going to look at movies in terms of what we can learn from them as screenwriters. We're going to look at good movies and bad movies, movies that we loved and movies that we hated. And this week, we're going to be looking at Deadpool 2 by Rhett Rees, Paul Wernick, and a new addition to the writing team, Ryan Reynolds. If you missed my podcast on Deadpool 1, you might want to check that out as well because one of the things that's very interesting about Deadpool 2 is the way that it manages to maintain a very consistent tone over the course of a very different movie. If you've studied TV writing with us at all in our TV drama classes or our TV comedy classes or our web series classes, you know that um, this is a phenomenon that we used to really only see in television, right? The idea that every episode of a TV show should feel the same and also feel different, that it should deliver the same genre experience to the audience, the same tone, the same feeling, the same experience, while taking them through a story that also feels very new and very fresh and very different. So aside from the questions all over the internet about whether Deadpool 1 is better or Deadpool 2 is better, rather than, than comparing them in terms of which is a more successful movie, instead what I want to do is I want to look at how do you maintain that consistent tone? How do you create one movie after another that has the same feeling that feels at once entirely fresh and also entirely consistent? And this will be valuable for you in many different ways. If you are writing a TV drama or TV comedy or a web series, understanding how tone is handled in a script, how different elements can be brought together to replicate the same feeling for the audience will be extraordinarily valuable for you. If you're writing for feature films, this will help you in a couple different ways. Number one, a lot of the writing out there right now is work for hire writing or is rewriting. And to be a great work for hire writer or to be a great rewriter or a great polisher of scripts, we need to not only be able to create great stories and great characters, that's just the given of the basics of what we need to be able to do. But we also need to be able to write characters that didn't originate from us. We need to be able to create characters that fit effortlessly into a universe or world created by other people. We need to be able to emulate the voices of other characters. So it will help you in your career if you're interested in rewriting, if you're interested in being able to take notes from a producer and adapt your work, if you're interested in having control over your gift rather than just letting anything that comes out onto the page be what you end up with. It will also be valuable for you even if you're only working on your own script because oftentimes there's a big gap between what we imagine our movie is going to be and what actually comes out on the page. <laughs> Many years ago, one of my students, he was a very talented drama writer, and this was his first foray into comedy. And he pulled me aside at one point and he says, Jake, what do I do if I do all this work and it turns out it's not funny? And I said, well, Bill, then you will have a drama. 
Ultimately, that's still the answer I believe in. As writers, we really should worry a hell of a lot less about tone. We should really worry a whole lot less about where we're going to end up. And we should really focus on what it is that we're writing, what the script wants to be. At the same time, oftentimes as writers, we kind of freak ourselves out because we'll write something that feels like it's not coming out right. We're writing a wonderful comedy and everything's really funny, and then here's this incredibly dark scene. Or we're writing something that's incredibly dark, and then suddenly here's this goofy thing that's dropped in. Or we're writing something that's set in a totally natural world, and then suddenly we see some expressionistic or magical or fantasy element come in. Something that feels like it's from a different genre. And oftentimes what we want to do when that happens is just shut it down. Oh my God, what's wrong with me? Why am I going off on this crazy tangent or at this crazy angle? When really what we need to do is we need to bring ourselves back and go, okay, let's start by noticing what comes up and then let's start to adapt it to turn it into what it needs to be. Jerry Perzigian, who teaches our TV comedy classes here, has a quote that I've, I've brought up before, but that I just really love. Jerry says, first write it true and then write it funny. But if you're studying TV drama with Katie Torpy, she would say the same thing. First write it true and then find the drama. If you're writing an action movie, I would say the same thing. First write it true and then find the action and the spectacle to build around it. As writers, our ultimate job is to tell the truth. But ultimately, in our final drafts, we need that truth to take a form that fits with all the stuff around it. Or if we're working on a film like Deadpool 2, we're working with a character who's supposed to feel and look and be and act a certain way. We need to fulfill the expectations that our audience had set up for them in the first episode. Just like we need to fulfill the expectations that we set up for our audience on the first page or the first act or the first half of our script. We have to give them what we promised and then we have to outdo it. If you look at Deadpool 2, it's an exciting film because just like episode one, it deals with a lot of stuff that you're not supposed to deal with in a comedy. Suicide. Death of a lover. Child obesity and anger. Child abuse. Sexual abuse. Murder. And one of the fabulous things about Deadpool and Deadpool 2 is that even though the films are both chock full of violence, Deadpool the character shows a lot of awareness that those bullets hurt, that the actions he's taking are not necessarily right, that the violence that we see in these films is not really the society that we want to create for ourselves. So you have this completely amoral character, or mostly amoral character, in a film that has a actually relatively moral message. You have a completely irreverent action comedy that's actually dealing with some very, very real issues. And although you have a wisecracking character who never seems to break a sweat or never seems at loss for a joke, you have a couple of moments of truly moving character-driven drama between him and his wife. What's really beautiful about the film is that it's able to wrestle with very real, truthful, dark issues without losing that constant comic fun tone that categorizes who Deadpool is and how this series works. In episode one of Deadpool, this was already hard to do. But in episode two, this was actually harder. Because in episode one, what we have is we have a creation myth. We have the journey of Wade Wilson to becoming Deadpool. And in that story, we have the story of a guy learning what really matters in life. 
And even though, as I commented in my first podcast on Deadpool, it doesn't draw to the traditional moralistic conclusion that you would expect in a superhero movie. Wade Wilson does go on a character-driven journey where he learns that it really isn't all about materialism, right? It isn't all about looking good, that he can actually believe in love. And a really beautiful love story grows between Wade and Vanessa, between Deadpool and Vanessa, his stripper prostitute girlfriend, where these two very flawed people actually find real love together. What that means is that by the beginning of Deadpool 2, We need a completely different kind of journey for the character. Deadpool 1 is a journey about discovering that love can be real. But you can't just go do that again. And somehow we know from the model of Deadpool 2, if we've studied any TV writing, and these big budget action movies do work like TV in that each installment needs to feel the same but also be different. If you've studied any of that, you know that for the formula, for the engine to work, he has to go on another morality versus lack of morality kind of journey. But it can't be the same as the first one because he's already learned what love is. It has to be something new. So Deadpool 2 hones in on a different theme. If Deadpool 1 was about appearance versus reality, about a character dealing with the ugliness of his face and learning that he can still be loved for who he is rather than what he looks like, Deadpool 2 is about something different. Deadpool 2 is about family. And Deadpool 2 starts just like Deadpool 1 with a really beautifully shot, fun, funny action sequence. So Deadpool begins, like Deadpool 1, with a visually spectacular sequence. But while in Deadpool 1, this was a fun action fight sequence, in Deadpool 2, it's a suicide sequence. What we watch is a guy who can't die doing his best to blow himself up. What we do is we meet a Deadpool who is starting the film at a place of total despair. And though he's still wisecracking and fun, we can feel the despair underneath his actions and we can feel the length he's going to to try to end his life. We then flash back to find out why. And what we flash back to is a sequence between Deadpool and Vanessa that's a little bit surprising emotionally, tonally, if you're used to the Vanessa from the previous movie and the Deadpool from the previous movie. Because rather than meeting this hard-edged couple, what we meet is a couple preparing to raise a family. And though the execution of that sequence, of course, is done with great specificity by these writers in a way that only Vanessa could do it, giving him her IUD in a ring box. And even though thematically the question of family is brought up in a very Deadpool way, question of whether family is an F word, the execution of that scene, the tone of that scene, when compared to the tone of their scenes in the previous movie, is much more like a Hallmark film than what we'd expect in Deadpool, which is probably why, slight spoiler ahead, they have to kill her. And so, of course, that's what happens. And so we find out why Deadpool is suicidal. Deadpool is suicidal because having finally found the love of his life in the previous movie, he now has to deal with her death. So here we are at the very beginning of the film. We felt the ironic contrast between where we ended the last movie and where we're starting this one from a place of, of elation to a place of suicide. We've had that mystery answered by the surprise death of the love of Deadpool's life. So we've already knocked the audience out of their expectations because their expectation is that they're going to get to see in Deadpool 2 the completion of where we started in Deadpool 1, the story of these two people who love each other in the next phase of their story. And here we are 10 minutes in and she's gone. 
And that's the kind of decision that you, as a young writer, might actually throw out when it first came to you. And in fact, that's actually what these writers did. They threw it out. In an earlier draft, they just had her break up with him rather than actually dying. And it was only in later revisions that they realized, no, it's not enough for her to break up, that they had to punish this character, they had to hurt this character to such a great extent in order to move him at the beginning of a film to a place where he could actually go through a change. So we have a nice little ironic hook. We have a suicidal superhero who cannot die. We understand Deadpool's problem. But we also have a structural hook for his journey in relation to the theme, which is having lost the one person he loves, Deadpool's going to learn how important family is. And of course, he's going to learn it in a super dark, super twisted, super funny kind of way. Having lost his opportunity to have a relationship with his own child, he's going to de develop a very different kind of relationship with another child. Ultimately, all of this stuff is going to bring him to a place where he has to learn what it is to be loved again, but this time in a different way. This time, not the love of a woman, but the love of a family, the love of a friend, where he's going to have to learn what friends actually are willing to do for each other and how to put his heart in the right place. So we have a dramatic hook, we have a hook to the pitch, we have a hook in relation to the theme, we have a journey. But how the hell is this going to work tonally? How do you create a film that's going to be that damn funny, that's going to deal with concepts that are so dark that we usually would only see them in a dark, twisted family drama? How are you going to do a huge budget action movie that's going to appeal to everybody? and still wrestle honestly with these incredibly dark themes. Let's talk a little bit about tone. I actually learned my greatest lesson about tone from one of my professors, one of my great mentors, Peter Saccio. Peter's one of the foremost Shakespeare scholars in the world. Though you might be a little bit shocked to hear me describe Deadpool in the same breath as Shakespeare, I would like to suggest that actually what these writers in Deadpool 2 are doing is actually very similar to something that Peter Saccio pointed out that Shakespeare was doing in Henry IV Part 2. If you know Henry IV Part 1, the show gets stolen by a big fat character named Falstaff. Falstaff is the big clown. He provides the comic relief in the piece. If you remember Jack Black in High Fidelity, well, Falstaff was the Jack Black of his day, that character who stole the show and everyone fell in love with them. And when the audience came for Henry IV Part 2, they were really coming for Falstaff. So what happens in Henry IV Part Two is you show up, and just like you show up in Deadpool with the expectation like, oh, I get it, I'm going to get a very specific tone, and I'm going to get the relationship between Deadpool and Vanessa, and that's going to be fun. You come into Henry IV Part Two, and you expect that you're going to get to see Falstaff. Instead, it ends up right at the beginning of the film that Falstaff is dead. Falstaff's death is reported by a drunken prostitute in Henry IV Part Two. And her monologue is absolutely hilarious. It's played for comic relief. You get to the end of that monologue and you know Falstaff is dead, but you're having a great old time finding out. And what Peter Saccio did was he did a very deep reading of the monologue underneath that monologue of the words underneath what the drunken prostitute is saying. See, she's so drunk she can barely string a sentence together. But his deep reading actually suggested one of the saddest monologues in history. In fact, Peter Saccio brought a lecture hall of about 250 students to tears with a deep reading of 
this very funny monologue looking for the drama underneath, the story of a guy who's brought nothing but joy to everyone he's met but who doesn't know it and who is on his knees begging God for just a few more moments so that he could accomplish one thing that actually mattered in his life. So he gives this incredibly devastating monologue, the monologue underneath the comic monologue. And he had a theory. We don't know if this theory is true or not because we don't know Shakespeare, but it is certainly one of the great lessons that I took as a screenwriter. His theory was that Shakespeare had originally written the dramatic monologue that he had realized after writing it that if he put that dramatic monologue at the beginning of Henry IV Part Two, he wouldn't be able to tell his history play about Hal turning into Henry IV. Instead, the whole piece would become about Falstaff's death, that it would just be too heavy. He would reduce his whole audience to tears early in the play, and he'd never be able to bring them back. So Saccio's theory was that Shakespeare had actually rewritten the monologue, changed not the content, but the way that content was delivered, and in doing so, played the same lines, the same idea for comedy rather than for drama. I'd like to suggest that that's exactly what Deadpool does as well. What Deadpool does is it applies a comic tone to all these incredibly powerful, serious ideas. It applies a character's voice, the unique way that Ryan Reynolds has of delivering Deadpool. It's so appropriate and exciting that he actually became part of the writing team on this piece. But the voice of the actor, the voice of the character, the unique how, the unique way that the character does it. And simply by executing a serious concept in a playful way, they turn something that could have been a drama into a comedy. What's really cool is that that comedy doesn't keep us from experiencing the story. In fact, and there's another slight spoiler here, by the end of the film, Deadpool will finally reunite with Vanessa. Deadpool actually will make the choice to let himself die when he could have saved himself so that he can be with the woman he loves. And the scene that happens between them at that moment, Deadpool has been visiting her at moments where he blows himself up at moments where it seems like he's going to die. Deadpool has been visiting her, but there's always been an invisible wall between them. And this time he goes to her and he finds his way through that wall in an incredibly beautiful and touching moment. And the last thing you want to be doing is crying at a Deadpool film, but you're feeling those emotions well up at you as you watch this moment. Because they play this moment, unlike all those other comic moments in the piece, they play this moment for real. Tonally, what happens is it stands out among all those places where we've seen the candy shell on the outside of Deadpool. We've seen his quipping and wisecracking, and we see this moment where he's restored to his real body, and we see this moment of real connection between the two of them, real vulnerability where he lets his guard and his style go, and we feel his love at that moment. And then just when we think we might be ending up at a hallmark moment, Deadpool turns it upside down for us again. I'm not going to spoil those moments for you, but it's a wonderful surprise that brings us right back to the kind of tone, the kind of twisted darkness that we desire when we come to a Deadpool film, while at the same time setting us up for the elements we need to get to the third sequel. I want to leave you with a really important idea. Oftentimes as screenwriters, we tend to censor ourselves and we tend to get censored by those around us. We come up with an idea 
that doesn't fit the tone or doesn't fit the theme or seems like it's going to be hard to do or seems like, well, no one's ever done it like that before. And either a voice in our head or a voice from the outside world says, whoa, 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 that just ain't gonna work. No, 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 you can't kill off the love interest at the very beginning. No, 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 you can't deal with suicide in an action comedy. No, 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 you can't have an action movie that actually looks ethically about what does it mean to be making these violent films. We all have these inner voices in our heads. And so if you end up with something that you don't think could work, but you think is really cool, if you end up with something that breaks the rules, that doesn't fit with the other stuff in the genre, if you end up with something that doesn't fit the tone and you know that that's the truth, don't allow that censoring voice to get in your way. Instead of asking yourself, what's wrong? Why doesn't it work? Ask yourself, how can I control the tone? How can I make it work? How can I make this thing that shouldn't fit turn into the best thing in the film? And this will put you in a mindset that opens you to the real creativity, that allows you not only to be a great writer of your own stuff, but also to be a great writer of other people's work, that will allow you to fit into a writing team without losing your own unique voice and your own creativity if you're interested in TV comedy, TV drama, or web series writing, that will allow you to work on a work-for-hire project and take a character that someone else has developed or that exists in an existing property and write it in a way that feels at once truthful and unexpected. This is how you bring your own voice to the piece without losing what the piece ultimately has to do and how you listen to your own instincts without losing where you need to go. It's not by controlling what you write and trying to make everything work. It's instead by looking for the truth and then applying the craft you need to create the tone, the feeling that you ultimately want to leave the audience with. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. For a complete transcript, please visit our website, writeyourscreenplay.com slash podcast.